Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hey, Laurie. Hi, Sam. What's happening over there? Well, we saw last week the death of a Texas icon. Larry McMurtry died at the age of 84. And I don't know if he's a big deal in the UK, but he's huge in the United States and particularly in Texas. He was the author of a lot of books, about 30 books, actually, most probably known for the very lengthy novel Lonesome Dove. But he was also a a screenwriter, and he wrote the screenplay for Brokeback Mountain, which won an Academy Award, I think, in 2006. Uh, he didn't write the story. That was Annie Prolix, but he, he wrote the screenplay. And kind of something that not a lot of people know, but folks in Texas know about, is that he had this bookstore called Booked Up in a little town called Archer City. And that bookstore had over 400,000 volumes of oh, wow. books. It, it took like six buildings in the town street of this little town. And for over 50 years, he was just a consummate collector of books. And he actually said that he saw his greatest legacy as his book collection, really, rather than his writing. But it's a big loss for the state and for the country, and he'll be greatly missed. He was kind of a character, grew up on a ranch in Texas. So just kind of, and I think I read somewhere that he showed up at the Academy Awards, like with, you know, a tuxedo jacket and shirt and then jeans and cowboy boots. So he was, (laughs) he was, he was quite the guy. Oh, he sounds great. Tell me what's been of interest over there, Sam. What have you been looking into? I've been trying to figure out what young people are up to, essentially. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There have been a few articles. And I've also, I teach a little bit at the University of Greenwich in London. And my students have been telling me a bit about this stuff as well, particularly BookTok, which they knew all about. And there's just been a really interesting article in the New York Times about this new phenomenon, which is, is making a huge difference in, in the book industry, it turns out. Kind of, kind of unbeknown to me, I have to admit. It was completely off my radar. Yeah, there was a big article about it in the Sunday New York Times uh, last week, and that was kind of the first I'd heard about it. But tell me what your students are saying. I, I was saying to them, you know, what is this thing? You know, I, I barely knew what TikTok is. And it, just in case you were like me, TikTok is, it's like... Um, a video sharing app, essentially. Uh, You can also get it on your web browser where people are sharing videos that are less than a minute long and tend to be much shorter. And they tend to be pretty noisy with lots of jump cuts and lots of background music and all sorts going on. And, you know, it's one of those things I look at and I'm like, yes, maybe maybe I am no longer young. I just can't quite keep up. <laughs> so I was saying to my students, you know, this doesn't, you know, how, how do you talk about a book in, in 15 seconds? And then they started explaining to me how it's all about emotion and the way the book feels. And it gives them a really strong impression of what's going on really quickly. And it started to kind of make sense. And then this article came out in the New York Times, which, you know, handily explained it to people of my generation. And there were a few really, really striking things. So there's a book called We Were Liars by E. Lockhart. They got on the bestseller list last summer in 2020, but it actually came out 
in 2014. And there's a great quote from the author who said, I had no idea what the hell was happening. And then found out that a few people, via her children, of course, who explained this to her, had been recommending it on TikTok. And then this algorithm that if you're a book lover, the TikTok algorithm is really good at finding you out in a slightly sinister way, I have to say. And lots of people were being pointed towards this book and getting hold of it. And yeah, lo and behold, it became a, a bestseller. And then, you know, I, I looked into it and it's it's really extraordinary. So Barnes & Noble in the States have been setting up tables devoted to TikTok and BookTok's, I suppose I should call it. And this isn't, you know, this doesn't happen for Twitter or Instagram or other things, much as the hype has been about Instagram for books. And, um, you know, they have tables dedicated to the books being recommended there and they're shifting units. And there have been an incredible stat, 5.9 billion views of BookTok, of the BookTok hashtag on TikTok wow. uh, by, at wow. the end of March 2021. So, you know, it's significant. And, you know, I watched a few few of the videos. There's these uh, sisters from Brighton, uh, so in the south of England, and they made a video of a book called Little Liars. That It's just this incredible montage of shots really it's this mood board of things flashing at you related to the book and a snippet i think of it oh no i hear i'm doing the uh the old guy thing again i think it was billy eilish who i believe is quite hip amongst the youth i'm glad i hope <laughs> i've heard yeah. of her I've heard oh of her. god i hope my daughter doesn't listen to this and um you know so there's a billy eilish song it's all pumping montage 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 suddenly it stops it's been viewed five million times and loads of people have bought the book as a result. And you know, I didn't get that one, but some of them I did get. There was an absolutely brilliant one by someone called Ayman Chowdhury. And it's a shot of her smiling and it says, day one of reading The Song of Achilles. You know, the book by Madeline Miller that came out, yes. I don't know, about a decade ago, I guess. And so you get day one and she's smiling. Then it cuts to her finishing the book and she's screaming, like really screaming and crying. And then there's a shot of the book whizzing across the room. And this has been viewed millions of times. And did that book, you know, it did well, Song of Achilles. And it won the, the Women's Prize for Fiction over here. And now it's selling nine times as fast as when she won that. So it's pretty incredible. And the more I dug into it, the more I came around. And, you know, there's lots of really sweet things about being a bookworm. And there were some nice quotes in the, some of the articles I read about people finding each other. You know, if you're the only bookworm in your town, suddenly you can find loads of others on BookTok. And it's really nice. And of course, now as a publisher, I'm sort of thinking, oh God, you know, I should try and get in on this. And then should I be promoting Gallybegger Press books on there, for instance? But, you know, but of course, how do I relate to the yeah, the unfinished prefrontal frontal cortex people, <laughs> kind of the, you know, the, the, the teenage uh, girl audience primarily you know no one wants to see me emoting over Hemingway I hope <laughs> and uh, you know anything I do would be incredibly lame you know it'd be a bit like and ruin it of course you know a bit like when um, you know the, the boomer generation took over Facebook and very quickly everyone realized it was a toxic sewer I think you'd have to get your daughter to do <laughs> some for some of your books because I think that she could probably look more authentic and, you know, give us all the feels, which <laughs> I watched. I watched some of the, the videos as well. And yeah, they're very emotional. It's all about, you know, 
kind of how the book makes you feel. And one of the interesting things that I read, and I thought the same thing after I saw some, were that, that you really don't learn much of anything about the book. It's just this kind of how someone is moved by the book and in what way they are moved. Yeah, that's really true. It's the, it's the emotional response. And in a way, I guess that's what you want from reviews. So it's, it's like a super strong, potent, really fast distillation of what reviews are trying to do. In a way, of course, you know, maybe a few of the subtleties are missing, but... What have I been doing, you know, as a as a book critic and writing book essays? I could just, you know, spend 15 seconds, you know, crying and <laughs> screaming and, and pounding at the wall or my head or something. And, you know, maybe that's that would be vastly more entertaining than than struggling over words. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to worry now. Like, how how, for instance, do you do you review you know the latest hardcore piece of modernism from Fitzcarraldo editions? You just kind of <laughs> sit there scratching your head, and that's the end of the film. You know, hmm. but uh, if that's made you feel old, it's nothing compared to the other thing I've been looking at. So, I, I sometimes get press releases, of course, as a, as a journalist and largely ignore them. But there was one that caught my eye, which is that there's a UK poet, Arch Hades, who sold a poem for £50,000. So that's about 70000 of of your US dollars, I believe. And she sold it as an NFT. Are you, are you staying with me? I've heard, I've heard of these. I've heard of these. Okay. So an NFT is a, a non-fungible token and the press release says, buying a one-of-a-kind NFT means you acquire the unerasable ownership record of that piece of work, access to that piece, and the right to sell it on. So it notice it says it's an ownership record of that piece of work. So you don't really own the piece of work because that's a digital file, essentially. It's basically a kind of proof of ownership certificate. It's a unique piece of code that's saved on a shared public exchange. Are you ready for more uh, jargon and confusion? Uh, yeah, hit me. So this is a blockchain, essentially. It's stored on. So the same thing that Bitcoin is on. And I'm not going to attempt to describe this properly because I don't know. But it basically means that it's not stored on, on any one device or computer. It's stored on absolutely low. So the thing about cryptocurrencies that makes them secure is that they're on all kinds of different servers and you know a bit of the information is is all over the place and so no you know a hacker has to take over a huge part of the network too too big to hack basically is the theory and so these nfts they're like the certificates that are stored on blockchain in fact i'm going to give you a just in case that's feeling a bit opaque i cribbed a nice definition from cbs news who say it's a shared public ledger which uses sophisticated cryptography to ensure that the currency is authentic. A blockchain makes hacking very difficult because every transaction is recorded across a huge decentralized network of ledgers. Are you, are you staying with me? I yes, it's it's getting it's getting a little in the weeds, okay. but I'm still with <laughs> is it, you. Is it getting? And that's what the the NFT is. This certificate stored on this system, which kind of sounds good and secure, except notoriously it takes an absolute ton of energy to power this stuff and it's really notoriously bad for the environment and the other weird thing is that the the poem you know anyone can see it and you know jack dorsey for instance recently sold his first tweet or sold an nft for his first tweet 
And essentially all that NFT does is point to the tweet, but the tweet is there, it's on Twitter and anyone can see it. You don't exactly own the tweet, you own the thing that says you own the tweet in a way. Okay, okay, Sam, I got a question for you. So if I'm spending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, who knows what on something, a certificate, where's the bling here? I mean, you know, I, you know, it's not a nice piece of jewelry I can wear. It's not a nice painting I can hang in my apartment. It's not a flashy car that I can drive around. I mean, what am I getting? Just some little certificate that I can then print out and says like, oh, I own the original NFT of said poem. Wow. I don't get I, it. I guess you wouldn't print it because that kind of goes against the whole spirit of the thing. It's a I, I guess so, yes. You... That's so like <laughs> yeah, my... caveman yeah, exactly. age. But yeah, essentially, and I suppose the way of looking at it is that it's no crazier than owning a piece of art, for instance. You know, when everyone can see a pretty exact reproduction of that piece of art. And actually, if you're the owner, chances are you're going to have to hide it away because it's such a security risk anyway. So why own it? But I can see it and I can touch it. This is like the only thing I could see that would be, I don't know, maybe a tattoo of the digitized code that I could put on my bicep and like point around to people like, oh, hey, I own this. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's only so far I can I can defend it. And actually, I think the art market's pretty crazy as well. But would you like to hear the poem that sold for... Oh, yes, I would like to 70, hear the poem. 70,000 US uh, dollars. Yeah, let's okay. hear it. You sing a song that only I can hear, and you, the only one who hears mine. That's, that's the poem. <laughs> that's, the, that's it. That's so $70,000, please. I've written one myself. Oh, okay. But wait, do I have to buy it? Well, see if you want to. Well, I guess I wouldn't buy it. I'm buying the digital certificate for it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> you are my morning and night, every minute, every hour, all day, actually. I like that. <laughs> I'll give you, you $5 yeah. for that poem. Oh, my God. Even, even that is generous. Um, and here's a, another real one. I looked, so I looked, this is slightly mean. Uh, but I did look through uh, a few of the other poems of, of Arch Hades, and there are things like, kindness is not weakness. Real power is giving, not taking. <laughs> this, um, you know, she's making a lot of money from this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, you want to kind of laugh at the simplicity of the poem. But yeah, what, I mean, how clever and cunning. I mean, she's... She's riding this train for all it's worth, right? And it's at this point, I, I should stop being so cynical because, of course, the, the temptation is to mock this stuff. And a lot of the poetry you see on places like Instagram, these poets who've become famous in, in recent years who are putting out really simple stuff like Rupi Kaur. You know, it's not the wasteland and it's not my taste. But actually, there is power in the simplicity, maybe. And that's why people share it. And that's why... It cut through, for instance, recently, and I, I'm slightly ashamed to admit this e even because, you know, Amanda Gorman's poem on Inauguration Day. Oh, no. Oh, no. When, when I, what are you going to say? Well, Please be nice. Please be nice. Well, so the, there, there are complexities here because, you know, when I first heard it, or read it. In fact, I read it before I saw her really impressive performance. So, you know, I've got to say, you know, she was a great figure standing there 
and amazing delivery. And that made it really moving. But when I actually read the words on the page, I did think it was pretty rubbish. You know, I thought it was hackneyed. The rhymes were really forced. Things like justice and justice, trying to trying to put those together felt really strained and it, it was pretty cliched. And, you know, I was thinking, man, they should have got Zach de la Rocca in and, you know, someone who could really belt it out. But, but you know, it's not about me. And actually, I think I'm wrong here in lots of ways because it really, you know, obviously it resonated and they were the right words for the time and they cut through and they made people think. And as the, the cynical, you know, person saying, well, it's not exactly T.S. Eliot, you know, I, it's definitely, you know, I'm the asshole here. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and, you know, and then it's the same with the Instagram poets, you know, I, again, my students were telling me about this and they talked about how, you know, they take lines from these poems to, to protests and people put them on signs and they really resonate. And, 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 you know, that means that also that these poets, what they're doing, you know, they're doing real work for justice. So it's stuff that, does matter. So I kind of feeling I should be less cynical about this stuff. Well, getting back to the NFTs, to me, this feels like a potential flash in the pan that like in five years, we might all be laughing at the people that spent like really (laughs) seemingly silly amounts of money on these digitized certificates. Do you think it's here to stay? Uh, I don't know. I think one thing I've learned as a journalist, not to make too many predictions. I mean, I can't remember, 15 years or so ago, 20 years even, I was laughing at ebook readers and saying, well, no one's going to have those. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> and so I'm, I I'm not going to go there. But I do have one more thing to say about uh, Arch Hades is that <laughs> her best-selling book of poetry is called Fool's Gold. So ah, <laughs> the irony of yeah. it all. She was ahead of her time. <laughs> Okay, Sam, that's great. That'll wrap it up for our news. And now on to our next segment. Today, we're going to be talking about a book from Canada, which is extremely Canadian, called Bear. And it's by Marion Engel. And it's got a, it's a fascinating book in all kinds of ways. And even its publication history is pretty unusual and interesting in that it's coming out Again, here in the UK at the end of April, Uh, it has been published before. It was published, I believe, in the US in 2002, but it was first published back in 1976 in Canada. And there it was a a considerable success after a slightly turbulent history in that it was was rejected by Marion Engel's usual publisher. She was quite an established writer by the time it came out. Um, She was born in... 1933 and had had a a considerable career by 1976 but her editor at Harcourt Brace rejected the book saying its relative brevity coupled with its extreme strangeness presents I'm afraid an insuperable obstacle in present circumstances but then it came out and did well and for reasons we'll be discussing caused considerable well (laughs) alarm you could even say and as far as most of the rest of the world was concerned, it disappeared for a while. Uh, but then it was republished in the US in 2002, as I say. But its big moment came in 2014 
when someone posted a, an image on the image sharing website Imgur of a really lurid version of the book's cover, which had a big bear and a woman in the state of undress, and the headline was, What the fuck, Canada? <laughs> <laughs> because this book, you know, it does raise some pretty interesting questions. And well, why, really why, why do you take those, Laurie? <laughs> well, I was, I'm happy that you mentioned the, or read the editor's quote, because I was going to do so if you didn't. Because, of course, I don't agree with the decision not to publish it. I think it's an extraordinary work. But just the way that the editor described it, extreme strangeness and that it's an insuperable obstacle in present circumstances. I think it probably would have gotten a little bit of a, a more positive reception were she to present the book to her editor today. I mean, it it is, I would say, provocative, but I don't know about you, Sam. I didn't I didn't quite find it lewd, but maybe we should kind of set the table for the listener and, and tell them a little bit about what, what the book is about besides a bear. Yeah, I guess... Yeah, we could start by talking about what isn't strange about it in that it's a really, I found it actually a really moving description of a young woman called Lou. She's a, a 27-year-old. She works in a museum, the Heritage Institute, she calls it. And she has this disappointed life, I would say. It isn't tragic, but it does feel unsatisfactory. She's doing a job that's fine. Uh, she describes it as the least parasitic of the narrative historical occupations. <laughs> <laughs> I underlined that part too. That was a great description. Oh, it's, there's so many great descriptions, aren't there? That yes. Just, there are loads of them that, that just jump out. But anyway, she has this, this job that, you know, she's getting along and it's okay. She works, she's kind of works in this historical institute cataloging things in a in a basement and there's this lovely description early on of of the, her kind of the state of her working in this job and it goes when she saw that her arms were slug pale and her fingerprints grained with old old ink that the detritus with which she bedizened her bulletin boards was curled and valueless when she found that her eyes would no longer focus in the light she was always ashamed for the image of the good life, long ago stamped on her soul, was quite different from this, and she suffered in contrast. That just encapsulates the disappointment that you were talking about just so very well. Yeah, that's right. And it's all done so briefly and so quickly. You know, that that statement is pretty much, it's not the sum total of what we hear about that disappointment, but it's it's almost enough. And then And then things move on. You know, we learn we learn that things have been going badly for her and she can't cite anything in particular as a problem. And there's another lovely quote. Rather, it was as if life in general had a grudge against her. Things persisted in turning grey. And then Lou gets an opportunity, kind of unexpected, to travel to a, a very remote part of Canada to, I'd, I'd say, kind of archive or catalogue the library and manuscripts of a colonel that lives on an island and she travels there alone. She meets some of the folks in the nearest, I guess, little outpost town where there's a, there's a small grocery store and a guide that takes her by boat over to the island and kind of shows her around and, you know, says this is where you'll, where you'll be living and staying and you're the only person on this island. Oh, and by the way, in a little shed out back, there's a bear chained up. And that bear has been 
you know, with this house for two decades or so, I think. And the bear, you know, is an animal. So be careful, but, you know, shouldn't really bother you. And it's the bear's the best friend of a woman that, that used to live around here, but she's been ill and infirm and her family's taken her away, but she wants to make sure we take care of the bear. And what I found kind of interesting, Sam, was uh, Lou's kind of, she she kind of takes on this issue about, oh, there's a bear chained up in back, kind of with a grain of salt. She doesn't, she doesn't seem totally freaked out about it, like I think most people would be. <laughs> yeah. Every, in fact, everything in the book is described in this really matter-of-fact, straightforward way. Like, everything is kind of, this is fine, this is normal. And a lot, a lot of it, in fact, feels almost, it becomes almost like an aspirational, lovely description of, of life in this, this house, cataloging, as you say, the, the dead colonel's library on a, an isolated island in the middle of a river. It starts to feel really nice, apart from the fact that we know that there's this bear in the background. So we get these great descriptions of the old house that she's in, the river, the sun, and canoeing. You know, it feel, it's what you want from Canada in a way. It feels like an escape. And there are, there are passages that really reinforce this. It's a lovely description. That, again, I keep saying lovely description because it's just so full of them. Really, it is. Yes. Where there's a moment we get, morning in the city is to be endured only. There is no dawn any more than there is real darkness. There is only after rainfall or street sweeping, the sound of tires squalling on wet asphalt. Here, she woke shivering again and raised her nose to the air like an animal. The light in the bedroom was extraordinarily white. She pulled herself out of the colonel's baronial bed and went to the window. The world was furred with late spring snow. It's just lovely. And, you know, that it's just a little thing, but the word furred there is just so perfect and gives you a really good image of that snow. And then it goes on, it says, it was the soft, thick stuff that excites you unless you were driving or half dead. And it's just great. It's lovely. And... That same tone is maintained throughout. It's calm and it's matter of fact. And we're kind of being told, yeah, this is fine. This is normal. But do you want to yes. take Yes, a big but, because what I, unless you've heard a little bit about the book um, by reputation, Lou kind of maybe I would say evolves or one could maybe even say devolves <laughs> from this very kind of, what we assume to be straight-laced librarian who doesn't really have much of a social life and is kind of boring, she kind of evolves and becomes more and more feral, I think, as the book progresses. And it all has to do with her relationship with the bear out back. She kind of approaches the bear for the first time kind of apprehensively, but then she starts spending more and more time with the bear. The bear's chained in this cabin, but she sits on the front stoop and eats with the bear. The lady that used to live there and take care of the bear, the older lady that I mentioned, tells her that the best way for the bear to get to know you is to shit beside the bear, and then the bear <laughs> will will be your friend and have your smell and you know everything will be okay. And she actually does that pretty early on, but she really kind of, whether it be out of loneliness or just something inside her that feels the need to kind of become kind of more naturalistic or animalistic, maybe herself just forms a real bond and relationship with this bear. And it becomes 
gradually more than just a companion, but in some ways it becomes her best friend, her confidant, and actually her lover. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what do we do with that? I mean, what is it, what's it representing? Is it, I suppose, different people have very different reactions to this. And some people are horrified by this book, of course. Yes. I think I told you on a previous uh, chat we had that at my bookstore in Dallas, in Terabang Books, we've featured this book in an edgy fiction display. It's a favorite of one of our very good booksellers. And we had a couple that came in and really wanted recommendations on books. And they went to the edgy fiction display and my bookseller said, yeah, it's a great book. And they bought it. And then we got some not so favorable comments on social media that while the book was lovely, this particular reader found it perverted. And <laughs> I don't feel that it's perverted, Sam. What do you think? It's hard, isn't it? And I keep pausing and stuttering. I mean, I mean, it's strange and it's disturbing. And I'm not sure that I know what to make of it, but certainly the way it's presented and that's part of the, the magic of the book is that it is presented in, as I keep saying, this really straightforward way that it's not eroticized. It doesn't feel like it's lurid. But of course, it is obviously this disturbing, upsetting situation. And, and there's a great quote from a, a critic called Scott Simmons, who saw, saw the book as a spiritual gangrene, a Faustian compact with the devil. But then there are entirely opposed opinions that where, you know, in 2014, uh, a critic, Emily Keeler, called it the best Canadian novel of all time. And it's possible to see it. I mean, people have seen it as a feminist book. And there are, there are definitely lines in the book where, for instance, Lou will be thinking what she disliked in men was not their eroticism, but their assumption that women had none, which left women with nothing to be but housemaids. And there are these really telling lines that strike home. And I would say that the, the, the relationship between Lou and Bear, she just calls him Bear, I think for the most part is a beautiful friendship, more than a sexual relationship. At least that's what I saw. Of course, there is, there, it does kind of go that way. And you're kind of like, the whole time you're reading, like, no, no, don't go there. You're, you're not really going to do that, are you? But they swim together and they play ball together. And she hugs him a lot. And tells him that she loves him and that, you know, that he's just like the best thing in her life ever. And all of this is kind of juxtaposed, which I found to be a very interesting technique with as she's archiving this house, because it, she is still kind of working, even though most of the time she's just playing with the bear. But she comes across in all of these books in the Colonel's library, notes about bears, kind of factual notes about their habitat and the different types of species and all these kind of this data, these factual things that to me anyway, I don't know how you took it, Sam, but kind of um, emphasize that a bear is very different than a, than a person. But yet at the same time that she's reading these and collecting these and, and really kind of taking note of them, she's kind of crossing the line between human and animal herself. And it's kind of a contradiction, I thought. So, so you think she becomes more animalistic as she reads more about the bears and experiences more of the bear? 
experience being that, a very <laughs> yes I, th- I think i think that she does and i think that that's in juxtaposition to this data that kind of illustrates the fact that you know bears are animals and a very different and a very specific type of animal and just all of this kind of zoological data i would almost say that kind of i would think dehumanizes the bear as she's anthropomorphizing the bear yeah i guess that's interesting I'm, try- I'm trying to gather my thoughts about this. Like everything else in the book, I mean, I think the answer is probably maybe. <laughs> Another way of looking at it, I guess, is she becomes more alive on the island. So in contrast to her old grey life, there are all these the beautiful colours on the island. There are great descriptions of the river and that the snow I was talking about before. And is she is she becoming animal or is she escaping something in the, the normal world that she that doesn't just isn't working for her. And you, you wonder what happens to her after the story, which is a fascinating thing about the book. Where does, where does she go with what's happened to her in this experience? And, you know, how does she, how does she slot back into, you know, in, in heavy scare quotes, normal life afterwards? Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to kind of give away the ending, but you do wonder, you're absolutely right, Sam. Has she been transformed? <laughs> by this experience with Bear, you know, even even as we think that she's about to re-enter kind of normal life as I, I think that, that you phrased it. One of the things that I think that we do learn and that comes a little bit of a shock too is I guess I kind of saw Lou before she meets Bear as kind of a prude and, and maybe even a virgin. But after she kind of starts having some sexual feelings, I'll say for the Bear, <laughs> We learned that she was actually also having sex with the director, and I I wondered that took me by surprise. I, what was your reaction? Yeah, I think I was surprised, and it was also there was something a line that you know they they have sex on the the desk, and it's almost as if they're um, we're told that that the director fucked her on the desk while both pretended they were shocking the government. So that. <laughs> the, the idea that she's doing something outrageous you know back then you know compared to what she's doing now is is nothing but you know that there is that feeling that she she has something against society she wants to stick something to society and things that aren't aren't working for her yeah she definitely there are these kind of like you could say ornery or or maybe even rebellious things about her that you don't suspect at all in the staid tone of the narrative and the way that she's presented at the beginning of the book, I think. And that I think that kind of just makes the book all that more fascinating and complex to think about because there really are layers to this woman that become apparent as as the book goes on. Yeah, I suppose the the other thing that we should say is that it, the book is really funny and Lou can be really funny. So at one point we're told she she inhales the bear's randy pong and then we get, really, she thought, really. And there are these great, shocking, hilarious lines that, that really, you know, that, I mean, the whole situation is funny and the, the, the fact that it's presented so straight is funny. And then we get lines like, Bear, she cried, I love you. Pull my head off. And there's another fantastic one where she Lou says, Eat me, bear. And a, a Canadian critic has said that 
you know, depending on how you read it, that is either the, the worst line in all of Canadian literature or it's one of the best. And I think that really sums up an awful <laughs> lot about the book that you just don't know what to make of it. And it's either absolute genius or this abomination as some people see it. I, I think I tend towards the genius side, but I still, I'm left I'm left clueless. And I, I think the, the thing I, I would urge is that everyone reads it. So, that, you know, just to see what they make of it themselves or, or don't quite manage to make of it. And I, it's one I, I don't know about you, but I want to come back to it in a few years to, to see if I still feel the same way. I totally agree. It's for nothing else, you can say that it is an original narrative. And I think that, and beautifully written, and the nature writing and the descriptions of the nature are undoubtedly beautiful. I don't think anyone could question that. Whether or not you find the plot distasteful um, <laughs> is another thing. But yeah, I really think that I'm really happy that this small publisher here in the US, David Godine, brought us this book almost 20 years ago now. And finally, I guess it's being published or reissued in the UK in April. So that's our discussion of Bear. And I hope everyone will, um, will take a look at it and give it a try. And until next time, Sam. Until next time. Thanks, Laurie. Bye-bye. 